welcome to the Thread and Ladle podcast, where we share conversations about living a handmade life and inspire each other to practice daily acts of creativity. I'm your host, Beatrice Perrin Dolan. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I have a very special episode planned for you today. Today, I have my first ever podcast interview guest. Her name is Casey Ryder, and she's a very special person. She lives in Portland, Maine, where she runs a store called Port Fiber, which she'll tell you more about. She's also the U.S. distributor for a yarn called Cashmere People Yarns. This is a yarn with a very special story. A few weeks ago, I released my Wintertide shawl, which is knit in this yarn, and it's hand-spun by women in Tajikistan and in Afghanistan, and it provides an income for women who otherwise don't have a lot of opportunities. It's a really special mission and a really special yarn, and I'm so excited to have Casey here to tell you more about it. Without further ado, here's Casey. Hello, Casey. Hi, B. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. You're Thanks my for having me. You're my first interview, so it's really exciting. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> uh, so maybe you could start by telling the listeners who haven't heard of you um, who you are and what you do. Okay, um, my name is Casey Ryder, and I own a shop in Portland, Maine, called Port Fiber, which is a shop that sells supplies for spinners knitters, weavers, dyers, and felters. I also host classes here. And I recently became the distributor of Cashmere People Yarns. So I, I've, lo- I've worked with your yarn and I love it. It's so beautiful and I really love the mission. Um, but I would love to hear, I don't know how sort of it began and I don't know how it came to be sort of in your care. So I'd love sure. to hear more about that. Sure. So it started, I believe it started in 2009. Um, Cashmere People Yarns was uh, funded by a grant in um, out of Italy uh, called EFOD that funds agricultural development and women-run businesses. So this kind of covered both of those aspects. Um, and the mission was to train women to spin Uh, export quality yarns, both mohair and cashmere kashgora yarns, um, to export to the United States. And for for many of the women who are involved in the project then and now, they hadn't earned money before. Um, So this was a huge opportunity uh, for those women. And um, the grant funded... Um, the workshop spaces, which were con- our converted shipping containers um, with solar panels, and it trained the women in how to spin. They each have an electric spinning wheel, which um, is different from the ones we have here in the States. They commissioned a man in Tajikistan to make them, and each bobbin holds about a kilo of yarn. So they're big. They're huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there are seven workshops in Tajikistan 
there are three groups in the north and four in the south in the Pamir Mountains. And then there's one group in Afghanistan. And probably over 70 women, a little over 70, are spinning export quality yarn. So each, each woman has a key to the workshop space. They come whenever they want and spin whenever they can, I should say. Um, and yeah, where am I going with that? <laughs> That's pretty incredible. So then, so it started with a grant out of Italy. So how, like, so I know that Peter Haggerty was involved at some point. So how did, how did that sort of um, transition happen? Then? Sure. Uh, Peter was selling the yarn uh, through his business, Peace Fleece, and he was connected with the woman who wrote the grant for the project, Liba Brent. And I'm not quite sure their history and how they were connected, but Peter has, um, with his company, has always had a mission of uh, well, Cult- cultivating peace through through this industry, right? Yeah. So, so originally his business was to um, combine Russian wool and U.S. wool to create their yarn peace fleece. And now their yarn is sourced, their wool is sourced from the States, uh, but it's from Native American and non-Native American ranches in the Southwest, um, fine wools and mohair. But yeah, Peter... Peter's always had that mission of of collaborating with people and bringing so somehow folks together. He got on board, and then and so he retired at some point. Yeah, and is that the point where you got involved? Yeah, so I was involved a little bit before then. Um, part of the grant involved having the group leaders from um, each of the workshops fly to the states and kind of do like a East Coast tour. Um, there was another, there were a few other businesses involved. Kismet Fiber Works, I believe, is the name of one, which has since gone out of business, but they were um, also importing the women's yarn and hand dyeing it. So they came to the US, they um, went to Vogue Knitting Live, and Kismet had their yarns at Vogue Knitting Live. So they were seeing how their yarns were being received in the States and kind of, uh, I'm sure it was a mind-blowing experience for all of them. Um, and they went to um, fiber mills to see how yarn was processed here. So these were women from the Tajikistan groups that yeah. were, okay. Yeah, there were four women who came. Um, and they also came up to Maine and visited with Peter Haggerty. Um, they visited with some spinning groups, and they also came here um, and to my shop, Port Fiber, and did a presentation of, of their yarns. Um, and then after that, they go back to Tajikistan. I'm just like living my life, doing my thing. Um, and Peter, uh, called and asked if I would hope a host some Skype sessions. So at that point, some of the women from here, from Maine had knit with their yarns and, um, this was a way of providing feedback and connecting with the women, um, and just, you know, sharing a little bit of our lives with one another. So I hosted a couple Skype sessions and then Peter asked if he could meet with me to discuss hosting another Skype session, which I thought was weird um, because why? Let's just schedule it in the calendar. (laughs) Um, So we came and we had tea and um, 
he said that he was going to be retiring and asked if I wanted to take on um, this part of, or he asked if I wanted to be the U.S. distributor, which I don't think at that point there was any U.S. distributor. Um, he was he was retailing it, but I don't believe he was wholesaling it. Um, and he said that I would have to go visit the women and that uh, it would all be paid for by the grant. So I was like, uh, yep, I guess so. That sounds like a great thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'd love to hear more about that trip. I think I saw a few pictures, but um, and and you've mentioned a couple of times just how um, dangerous it can be to transport, especially the yarn that's spun in Afghanistan. And so I'd, I would love to hear about your trip and just what life is like for the women and what your takeaway f- was from that trip. Mm, um, well, a major takeaway was just how much we have here uh, and how lucky we are to be born where we are born. Um, and and their generosity. Like those two things really stick out to me that they they really don't have a lot, but they are so giving and so like hospitable. Um, so I was, I traveled there for two weeks in March of 2017. Um, and I traveled with Liba who wrote the, wrote the grant and she had been there many times. So she knew how to get around. Um, and we visited the groups in the North for about a week and the groups in the South for a couple few days. Um, it was kind of a whirlwind. Uh, and I also think, this has happened in other aspects of my life of just saying yes to something and not really knowing what you're doing, what you're getting into. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then you are suddenly like halfway across the world in like a very, very different place and you don't speak the language. And I mean, I think that that's, (laughs) that's like the way things have to happen almost because if sometimes if we knew what we were getting into, we might be so afraid to Mm -hmm. take that first step Mm -hmm. that, um, that we would never do it. Mm -hmm. You know, Definitely. Yeah. So we, yeah, we traveled. The whole point of the trip was for me to meet the women and just for them to meet me and um, see their U.S. distributor. And did you have a translator with you? Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, Liba, Liba was my translator. Okay. Um, but it was, it was equal parts like me meeting and also just like Liba checking in with them mm-hmm. about quality control and just really reiterating like what a big deal this was um and so there was like there was opportunity for me to speak with the women but not not a ton like we weren't getting into in-depth conversations at all and I had maybe taken like two weeks of online Russian (laughs) (laughs) which was not enough enough. (laughs) um so a lot of communication too with just like hand gestures Mm -hmm. and smiles which can go quite a long yes yeah, it, it can um yeah and um I got to just sit and knit with them while they were spinning and have tea with them uh lots of eating yeah like there was I would visit so in one day I visited all three groups in the north and I didn't really realize that the eating and the drinking of tea was like a huge thing um so I like met with the women and then had um, lunch with the group leader um, and Liba and it was like a big spread of food and uh, 
then we went to the next group and there was another big spread of food and I was like oh wow I'm so full (laughs) we used to have neighbors who were from Jordan and we could not go to their house without having tea and coffee Mm -hmm. and cookies like I couldn't just pop in and leave like every time we would visit it it would be it's a a thing a whole tea service and and I couldn't just have tea would also have to have coffee you know yeah Yeah. I completely and you can't say no right like it's it's kind of rude and I I feel like actually I I miss that in American culture like we're also rushed all the time and there's no um yes there's just there's no time to sit down and enjoy a cup of tea with people and People are so, uh, like, worried about getting in your way or taking up your time, too, that, you know, I just, I I think there should be more of that. I do, too. Yeah, I was reflecting on it also, thinking, like, we, in America, we go out, we go out for a drink or we go out for food with our friends. And in my own life, I guess I can just speak for myself, but it seems to be our culture. Like, I don't have people over for dinner or tea so you were sort of didn't know what you were getting into, and then you you go over there, and um, when you went over there, did it sort of um, reshape the way you were thinking about this endeavor? Like, did it just confirm how important this business and this grant yes. was? Yes. Um, I had only met the four group leaders, and I met them here. Um, so to see them in their homes with their families and just to see how they were living their lives it does reiterate like how big a difference this money is going to make in their lives. And also another huge part of it. I mean, yes, the monetary aspect of it is very important to them, but in their culture, they don't socialize so much outside of their families. So this, this gets me all a little, (laughs) Um, like we all know how important it is for our making communities And we do socialize outside of our families and our culture. So for them to have a space to gather and and make and gossip and just like talk about what's going on in their families um, with one another is also just like a huge part of this. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe they didn't even know was going to be so like as important. Yeah. So what? I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but it, are there a lot of opportunities for women to work outside the home there? No. Okay. So this is one of the few sort of rare moments yep. when they can do that. Some women, some of the women who are involved in the project are also teachers, but most women before this um, just are just are homemakers and take care of their children. Um, and And I think it's 40% of the... GDP of Tajikistan is from remittances from husbands who are working in Russia, sending money home. Oh, wow. So, so there's not a lot of job opportunities for men for, either. for anyone. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> I, I spent some time reading through some of the biographies of the women on your website, um, on Cashmere people. And I'll link to that in the show notes. So other people can too. And I was, it was, I mean, you just reading through the bios of people, just so many of them have had, pretty serious hardships that it just that you don't experience here in the United States as much. So it was really um, eye opening just to read that. So I can't imagine what it was like for you to just to go there and experience it firsthand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it was eye opening. And I've I've talked about it a little bit like I've written some articles and I I tell the story 
often because this is my job now. But even getting ready for this interview, I was thinking like how um, how our stories just become when we repeat them over and over, they just become like a story and you don't feel the feelings yeah. over and over again. So I'm well you know. to, yeah, to experience it firsthand is a totally different thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so could you cor- sort of give us a picture of like what a day in the life of one of the spinners is like and what the landscape there is like? Ooh. Okay. The landscape. Well, the, it's different. So in the North, well, I also traveled in the winter, so there's not a lot of, like, foliage. Mm-hmm. But um, the north is kind of foothills, and it's bordered. The north northern part of Tajikistan borders Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. So it's kind of in the foothills. Um, it was pretty, like, tundra-y, I guess. Okay. Or, like, just dry um, and, and gravelly. And when we were driving to the northern groups, we'd see shepherds with their flocks of goats and sheep. And I was thinking, like, where are they going to bring these goats? Because there's not a lot of vegetation either. Okay. Um, so it was kind of barren feeling. Um, and then we drive through small towns with just, like, a few houses and a little general store or two. So it was much less developed, sort of. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The houses in the north. The group leader's home that I went to was similar to our homes, but um, like all of their rooms inside were were closed off, and the room that we were eating food in had a space heater, but everything else was not heated. Oh wow! Um, but it was the those homes were similar, and you asked about a day in the life. Um, the women will wake up this is my understanding from from their stories and from from Leba's story I didn't see them wake up you know like but they everybody takes pride in in their home so they wake up and they like clear their door yard they sweep their door yard and they like get the breakfast ready and so women you know they wake up and do the things that we all kind of do and feed their families and maybe tidy their house and then um, like what is the work week look for the spinners? Are they working 40 hours a week or are they working less or? Yeah, they are working about a 40 hour week, but it is dependent on the woman. So just their, their life circumstance, maybe they're taking care of family and, uh, depending on what they have for people to watch over their children while they work. Um, they may work less than that. Um, but each woman has a key. So the shop workshop, so they, they can, can, can come go. and go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Some women come like as the sun rises and they leave when the sun is setting, like they spend their whole day there. Um, and are they paid by productivity? Like how many, yeah. how much they spin? Yes. Or, okay. They're paid by the meter and they're paid, they're paid up front. So they, they submit their yarns in groups of five and they get paid more if it's a better quality yarn and if those five skeins all land within the same yardage range um like a very consistent a, a spin. consistent spin and i i just want to interject too because i i did a shawl with your yarn and, and th- these women's yarn and i was amazed by how consistent it was like yes. it did not look like a hand spun yarn I was like, just as I was working on it, I was really surprised that it was hand spun because there weren't, 
it wasn't didn't have that sort of thick thin quality that so many hand spun yarns do it was really even and yes. i was i was amazed yes it's like it's like almost machine spun yeah and i think that it's almost even in my display in my shop it's like my signage says that it's hand spun but when you look at it you don't think that it's hand spun right you know, it's, that's not the image that comes to mind it's really beautifully made yeah and so the women they you said they dye it they dye it there are three uh dyers in the north um and there's about there's 26 colors or 24 colors and two neutrals but this most recent shipment they just like went a little wild in the With dye colors <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm excited <laughs> to see the colors <laughs> just like made some new yeah made some new colorways so we can put those out into the world and see what people think yeah i'm excited to see that yeah um so so i you i kind of got your perception you know what you your perception of was of the country and the women but well i'm curious what their perception of their perception of you yes. was like um, yeah i i got a little bit of that um so when i when I traveled, it was March of 2017, um, and I had just recently gone on the Women's March in D.C., and so I was wearing my, I brought my pussy hat, <laughs> I was wearing that. Um, did they know what that was? They didn't know what the pussy hat was, but I, we had a discussion about it, and we also, um, like, a lot of our travel was, um, we had a driver, or drivers, and the drivers were all men, and they were asking about what was going on in our country. Um, And their, all of their news comes from Russia. So they have a, they have a certain. Yeah. It's uh, it's highly selected. Yes. But yeah, we had, I had a discussion with one of the Northern groups about the women's March and what that meant to me. And their, they were kind of quiet when I was talking about it. And then one woman said you're so lucky that you can even say anything that you think about any like voice any dissent yeah um yeah in their country uh you cannot speak ill of the government like you'll disappear and they told me like one of the women was relaying that their one of their friends just disappeared because he had posted something on Social, some social media site about the government and did is it definitely different for men and women as well like do women have less of a voice there than men oh i mean yeah yeah definitely um i mean in in government yes yeah and <laughs> um in general in general yes. um yeah but it's even when this project started they were saying that the women's husbands were kind of doubtful of what this the whole mission was or that they would even be making money um but then but then the money started coming in and they were like the husbands are like oh okay that's but, interesting yeah and the intention like behind the whole project is that it be women run so there's no none of their husbands have a hand in this yeah it's all run by them they do all the bookkeeping they make all the decisions um they make decisions like democratically within their group. Um, it's not the group leaders dictating anything. Um, they make decisions about how much they're paid. Like, yeah, they but make all those decisions. It's pretty amazing that that this little, you know, thing this is happening in, in a country like that. 
I also got to meet with a government official. Oh, interesting. And it was... And you have to, like, think that in a country like Tajikistan, they ha- the government has to have some sort of hand in this. Like, you can't just pop up a, like... Yeah, you can have a little pop-up shop <laughs> yeah. in Tajikistan. <laughs> if money is coming in, the government is getting some sort of cut. You know, like, right. that has to be the case. But the, this official was, like, talking about, oh, like, let's have more goats. Let's, like, let's just, like, make this output even greater. Um, but that's not, like, we got in the car and Lebo was like, no, like, we're not going to overpopulate the land with goats. Yeah. And it's very mindful about. I mean, in any business, right, you have to be mindful about <laughs> growth so that you don't suddenly either change your product quality or get bigger than you know than you you can sell or whatever but um i'm curious how this has grown over time so you said there's 70 spinners and how what was it like in the beginning was it one group or no it was always it was always um actually i think it were it was it started with the three groups in the north they have a history of uh mohair production okay so but the goats that this yarn is being spun from are um, are in the Pamir mountains which is in the south but the southern groups which i haven't really talked about you asked about landscape and i want to talk about that a little more um the southern groups are in the Pamir mountains which is part of the himalayas and they're way more isolated than the northern groups so they have less experience in business also like the northern groups had mohair production and they also have produce apricots for ap- export so a lot of the women in the north also have apricot farms okay or work on apricot farms um the southern groups are even more isolated um they they started with the intention of exporting both mohair and kashgora but they were finding that they didn't have a market for the mohair in the U.S., which this was before I came on board. And in my mind, I'm like, there's a market for everything. You just have to find it. Right. Um, But comparatively, the mohair versus the cashmere and cashcore, like you touch one, you touch the other, you're going to want. If you're you're knitting like next to the skin garments, you're Mm going to want the soft stuff. Um, so I mean, they decided it, to focus on the Kashgora. It's pretty dreamy stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so tell us the, about the landscape in, in the, the south. south. Uh, we drove from Dushanbe, which is the capital of the country, to um, Korag in the south. And it was a 15-hour drive. Wow. On basically like a camp road, like a dirt road. <laughs> Along the Panj River, which separates Tajikistan from Afghanistan. And is that what most of the roads there are like? No. Okay. No. We drove for maybe about an hour and a half or two hours on paved roads okay. um, until we got into the mountains. So this is just sort of like you were talking about how isolated it is. And this is an example of that. Just like you can't get yes. in unless you're 10 hours on a dirt road. Yes. On okay. like one road. That's yeah. the only road. It's like, the only road in and out. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we were actually going to take a helicopter in. Oh my God. Like at that point, um, we had 
so I flew into Dushanbe. We went to the nor- northern groups. We came back to Dushanbe. And when we came back to Dushanbe, we were meeting with um, more people from Italy, uh, people who were involved uh, with that organization, IFAD. Okay. Um, and then we were all going to travel to the southern groups together. Um, and they had UN security. And so part of that was like, we were going to take a helicopter, which would have okay. been two hours um, instead, instead of 15. <laughs> but like somebody's email was hacked or something. I don't know. There was, they were concerned for our, our safety. That somebody would know where the helicopter was at that moment? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of scary. Yeah. Um, so instead, we took a 15 hour drive through some avalanche country, (laughs) which is no big deal. That's not scary at all either. Yeah. Yeah. So we were driving through cleared avalanches on the Tajik side. And then on the Afghan side, you'd see these avalanches with just like foot trodden paths over them because they didn't have the means to clear them. Okay. Wow. Or they hadn't yet. Um, I also, on both sides of, of that river, um, people are just like walking with stuff on their back mm-hmm. and you're like, where, where, where are, are you going? going? Yeah. Just hiking for days to get wherever they're going. Um, maybe a day, yeah. like maybe many, many hours, like, you know, kilometer, like many kilometers between villages, but. It, uh, the, you know, we're recording this like during the Christmas season when everybody's like, I, I love the Christmas season, but I don't love the like manic, um, uh-huh. go to the mall like that. And it just really puts that into perspective, like hiking for a day to get whatever it is you're hiking to get or right, just whoever like you're food. hiking to see. Right. Just, yeah. Uh, versus this like manic, like everybody's at the mall shopping for like s- stuff we don't mm-hmm. need. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. such a drastic contrast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we would drive through small villages, like. Kind of also when we were actually at anywhere in the country, when we were traveling outside of the cities, there were walls around the houses. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't like see into somebody's yard. Was that for safety or what? I don't know. Like, okay. I don't know if that's just like the, a privacy thing and that's yeah. normal. Um, but sometimes you could like peek over and see their small gardens or their clotheslines. Mm-hmm. Or um, I think I saw like maybe a volleyball game or something, some sort of sport. And there are kids playing soccer on the Afghan side. Um, Yeah. So once you finally got there, 15 hours of driving through avalanche country, um, how was the, the Northern spinning groups? How was their scenery and everything different from the, the Southern? Well, the Southern groups, like I said, are, they are isolated being in the mountains and they're more, um, they live in traditional Pamiri homes. So what do those look like? They're one room homes that are like shared with the extended family. Um, there's a so everybody race. sleeps, yes. eats, relaxes all in one room yeah. all the time. Okay. It's kind of like, um, it's a square room with a raised platform on the outside where you, you eat. And also like, then you would clear that space to be, uh, a space to sleep. Mm-hmm. One corner is a kitchen. Um, and then down in the center, um, there was a wood stove. Okay. Um, and for, there are four groups in the South and 
three of them have converted shipping containers as workshop spaces. And have, do they have windows? And like, yeah. it's, it's oh, been yeah. converted nicely. Yes. Okay. Yeah, they have windows. They have um, wood stoves. Yeah. Okay. Um, and one of the groups didn't didn't have one. They were it was being built. Okay. Um, so they met in the group leader's home. Um, so we got to. So like that that one room was also a workspace. Was also a workspace for really big like spinning wheels. Kind of problematic, you know. Yeah. Really generous of the of the group leader. Um but the women would like bring their wheels with them. Okay. And keep them at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it was snowy, you know, like they're just like trudging through mm-hmm. to get to the workshop. Yeah. It really puts things into perspective. Yeah. Of like Anything that we find challenging on a day-to-day like, no, basis. You don't yeah. even know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just get over it. You're yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. You have a lot. And um, so, so they had three shipping containers and um, did you say that they raised animals in yes. the mountains there too? Yes. So every April is when the fiber is collected um, and the fiber is collected from small farms. Uh, some of the women who are spinners have goats in the Pamirs in the mountains, um, but then they have they have a wool buyer who goes um, travels because it's so isolated. He has to drive all over the place to get just small bundles of ashbora. Okay. Wow! The fiber is hand combed. So before before the before the grant was introduced to this region. Um, those farmers would shear the goats like with clippers mm-hmm. and then sell that fiber to Kyrgyzstan traders who would then sell it to China. And they were being oh, paid, okay. I think $2 a pound. Um, and each animal maybe at best produces two pounds of fiber. Um, so and like $4 for yeah, a fleece. A fleece. Um, and then when the grant came on board, um, they hired this wool buyer and he was paying $8 a pound, which then for the farmers who aren't involved, it makes it, it drives them like it increases the value of all of the fleeces. Okay. So the Kyrgyzstan buyers then have to pay more, even if, if they're still selling it to China. Right. So, so this work is not just supporting the spinners and the women. It's also supporting the agriculture there and the farmers who are, are, um, raising animals for fiber. Yes. I don't know how many farmers are involved, but if you think that, you know, there's one ton of fiber being collected and each farmer has maybe 10 goats that produce 20 pounds, like that's a lot of people involved. Yeah. So it's really, it's really healthy for the whole community, it sounds like, which is amazing. Yeah. So um, we talked about sort of the quality of the hand spun, but we didn't talk about Kashgora. Mm-hmm. And that was not a word I had ever heard before you started importing this yarn. So I, I would love to hear more about what Kashgora is, because I'm sure there's others who have never heard of that. Yes, Kashgora is its own goat breed it's not a blend of fibers um it is a cross breed between a cashmere producing goat uh and the local goat which is kind of like mohair um the cashmere goats were imported into russia i mean into tajikistan from russia in the 80s um and then they're crossbreeding these goats uh 
to produce a little more fiber than a cashmere goat would produce. Okay. And also the because it has mohair in its grass breed, it's a stronger fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a bit of shine. So you're like getting all the yummy qualities of cashmere, but then adding a little strength and shine. So it's a great fiber for uh, drapey mm-hmm. knits. And for people who are itch sensitive. Yes. Yeah. So, um, what, what's your, what's your part in this look like right now? My part looks like just getting this into the, into the world, Yeah, (laughs) which is a daunting task. Um, but also I know it's, it's like this premium yarn and once a person touches it, they're like hooked. Yeah. Um, so I've been to two wholesale trade shows, the TNNA show in Ohio in the summer. Um, and that's been really good for connecting with shops. And then I'm basically like cold calling shops and designers to get it in their hands, um, and get it out into the world. So if you want this in your shop, you should contact Casey, (laughs) contact me, tell your shop about it, knit with it, you know, Mm -hmm. all the good juju. (laughs) And so when you go to a show and um, people are looking at the yarn, do you find people stop and take the time to really hear the story about it? Yes. Yes. Um, and it's also, I think that it being a high quality fiber, only certain shops are going to stop. Right. Like it's, it's, a, not, it's a high price point. It's a high price point and not, not every shop is going to be able to sell it. Right. Um, but for those who, who know their customers want, this product, they stop and ask questions. Mm-hmm. They touch all the samples. But the thing that makes it so wonderful to me is the story mm-hmm. and the mission behind it. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess I just wonder how how you portray that to customers so that they know that when they're buying this amazing cashmere or mm-hmm. cashgora yarn, it's not just a skein of yarn. Like right. there's so much like trickle down from that purchase that's affecting so many lives. Like. How do you get that story across? Well, I think the f- the first thing is to point out that each skein has a picture of a woman on it. Mm-hmm. And like we were saying before, when you look at it, you don't necessarily think that it's hand spun. But each skein has a picture of the woman who actually spun it. Right. Like they keep they keep records and it's not just like any old, you know, face. It's yeah. the woman who spun it. Yeah. Yeah. One person. Yes. And then that's kind of an opportunity for me to to speak more about the project if they want to listen. And as you're, you know, moving this yarn, does it like, because you've met most of the women. So when you're looking yes. at the labels, <laughs> yeah. like, is that? The first show that I, the first TNNA show that I went to and I was packing up suitcases of yarn. Um, well, when I was in Tajikistan and speaking with the women, they were talking about how, um well, everybody wants to come to the U.S., mm-hmm. but they all know that that's really not a possibility for them. And so they they said, like, if if we don't get to go to the U.S., at least our yarn gets to be there. And so, like, that first show that I was packing up for, I'm, like, putting the skeins into the suitcases and all of the tags where the women's faces are, like, looking up at me. And I'm just like, ah, I'm getting, like right yeah, now. <laughs> no, I mean, that that to me speaks that like what an important project this is, you know, like mm-hmm. um, and I, I just hope that everybody listening can 
take that away too. Um, so one thing we didn't talk about was Af- the Afghanistan spinners. Yes. And um, you didn't visit Afghanistan when you were there, right? I didn't. I was, there were plans to, when we were traveling in the South, um, to go to a cross-border market, but it was snowing that day. And so the market was canceled or we just didn't go because travel was not safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but the women in Afghanistan are are spinning the 100% cashmere and they're in villages along the, along the Ponj river. And there's not as much of the cashmere as there is Kashgora. And I think that there's, there's difficulty in transporting the yarn and communicating with those women. Cause they're also in the Pamir mountains. They have less than the women in Tajikistan. Um, yeah. So and that that area is not as safe as Tajikistan, or are, like is it? I'm not sure because I was going to. We had plans to travel there, and I'm I'm a little bit ignorant of about you know. I was right. kind of just going along for the ride and um, still b- believing still that knowing. I was safe. Yeah, like <laughs> just like not asking questions. Because um, you you probably could like if you did was, then you would just right. <laughs> there would were be done. there were like comments about the Taliban in our in our drives now it's just like I'm not gonna not ask gonna... to have that translated yeah <laughs> yeah like no I didn't know if they were joking I didn't know if they were actually you know I don't yeah. know if they were trying to scare me just to be like a joke but yeah that would be a little bit scary uh-huh. so. Yeah. So you're working really hard at moving this yarn and getting it into shops and you also sell it from your website. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, sort of like what, what's your pie in the sky dream for this yarn? I want this yarn to be like in a shop, at least one shop in every state in the U.S. Yeah. Um, I have 14 shops that are care that's care that are carrying it right now. Um, I want I want designers to have it in their hands. Um, yeah, I I want to I want to do more shows. I'm going to Vogue Knitting Live in New York this January, um, and I'd love to be able to hire somebody to help me at some point. Yeah. And I, I think it's worth sort of interjecting here that, like, in the beginning you of the episode, you mentioned that. You have Port Fiber, which is a brick and mortar store. And you've mentioned before how challenging it is to run a brick and mortar store and this yarn line. And I think it's worth mentioning just because you're juggling a lot in two businesses that sort of have different needs or right. one business, two branches of the same business. I don't I don't know. but Yeah. And it also feels like cashmere people yarns is more important than Port Fiber, you know, because it affects so many women. Mm-hmm. So I've been prioritizing that which I'm fine with. Um, but I, I still need to pay attention to my own customers, uh, who may not be knitters and may not want to be knitters, um, and providing what they, what they need as well. Yeah. That's a a big challenge. So I just, I applaud you for how much (laughs) you're, you're doing right now. You know, not, it seems like we all like people who are in this industry, who work in this industry, are always like, working. That's their mode. Like you're always juggling. I completely agree. Yeah. Yep. I actually like last week was Thanksgiving week, and you know it's hard when for me personally when your hobby becomes your job because mm-hmm. then when I sit down to relax, <laughs> I'm actually working on a sample for work, right. and I was really feeling that. So last week I actually took, 
I, I did a non-work project and like, mm-hmm. I just felt like I needed that. And I think that's true. There's, especially for anybody who has like a handmade business or based in knitting or handmade work, it's, um, it's a hard way to make a living and, mm-hmm. and you, you have to work a lot, mm-hmm. um, which I think most of us don't mind because we love our work, exactly. but it, it's, um, it's important to, it's important to take a step back sometimes. And I hope you do that for yourself Thank sometime you. soon. Cause I know it's full on like into the Christmas season, which is probably really busy for you. So yes. I hope you get a breath in there somewhere. Yes. I've had a couple two day weekends, which has been nice. Oh, that sounds just glorious. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we can just end by um, telling people where they can find cashmere people yarns. Sure. Um, you can find it at cashmerepeopleyarns.com. You can read more about the story and read the bios of the women. And you can purchase it at portfiber.com. And you can also see who is stocking it at portfiber.com. So if you're not anywhere near Maine and you want to support your local business, go check that out. And I'll include all those links in the show notes so that people can find it easily by clicking over to my website. Yes. So thank you so much, Casey. Thank it's you for been, having me. It's been wonderful to hear more about Kashmir people. And I, I just think that this yarn is so important and it's doing such important work. And I um, really appreciate having you. Well, I appreciate you spreading the word. Thank you for joining me today on the Thread and Ladle podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are posted or when I publish new knitting patterns, you can sign up for my email list at threadandladle.com newsletter. You can also find me on Ravelry and on Instagram under the handle at threadandladle. Until next time, may you find joy and creativity in your days.